Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. After a marathon meeting at City Hall, Hamilton councillors have delayed a decision to approve or reject an urban boundary expansion. The National Council of Canadian Muslims calling for concrete action after the London terror attack. Can you donate your organs if you've had COVID-19? A broadcasting legend has announced he will leave the CFL after this season, and there's a new book for parents whose kids are picky eaters. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We are facing probably one of the biggest lobbies I've experienced in my 15 years on council, mostly for option two, but an equally balanced amount of contacts on option one. So we are really getting pulled in two directions on this thing. That is the voice of Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, who's going to join us in about 10 minutes' time uh, during yesterday's Marathon City Council meeting in which a long list, and I mean a long list of people, spoke for and against an urban boundary expansion in this city. And at the end of the long night at uh, Hamilton City Hall, at least virtually, uh, councillors decided they would not make a decision until later on this month. Uh, The city is basically faced with two choices here between trying to accommodate upwards of 110,000 new households through a combination of intensification and adding 1,300 hectares of rural land to Hamilton's urban boundary by 2051, so basically um, expanding the city outwards. The other option is doing so, building these new homes through infill and intensification. Basically looking at brownfield sites, empty spaces, undeveloped properties, and saying, hey, this is a good place to build some homes and some affordable homes, which would go a long way to addressing that crisis as well. Now, those in favor say expansion is needed to meet future housing demand. Opponents say, listen, we got to look at the environmental impact here, the loss of farmland, the cost of sprawl. It's more pricier to expand outwards as opposed to building uh, through what we already have. Uh, our guest on this is uh, Ian Borsick from Environment Hamilton, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Ian. Good morning, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Your reaction to the, uh, I guess, no decision yesterday at City Hall? Um, yeah, I guess I have to say that it was uh, disappointing, although I, I do understand it was getting quite late and council would have probably uh, been past midnight if they were to make a decision. Um, but to me, the the obvious answer to the 12 hours of delegations that we saw is that uh, regular Hamiltonians, independent experts, climate experts, and uh, residents of Hamilton from all over the city uh, really don't want to see urban sprawl. And uh, planners and uh, communications uh, consultants hired by developers really do. So make the case for expanding inward as opposed to expanding out. Yeah, so essentially, Rick, as you alluded to before, urban sprawl comes with it a hefty price tag for existing residents of the city of Hamilton and the city of Hamilton at large. We have a multi-billion dollar infrastructure deficit that has only grown over the last several many years. We see that uh, expanding outwards requires the city of Hamilton to essentially subsidize that development by bringing out things like stormwater and plumbing uh, infrastructure outwards. Road infrastructure is paid for by the city as well. Um, But in addition to that, we're talking about paving over what is prime agriculture land to build single family homes. Uh, As uh, City Councilor Brad Clark alluded to, we've been seeing a lot of expansion over farmland in Ontario for many years now. In fact, many decades, we've never seen prices of homes come down. 
And in fact, what the reality is, is that this is the type of homes that developers want to build because they make the most money off of it. They, in many cases, have already bought this land that uh, we're talking about with the Alfreda lands. And they just want to be able to extract as much profit from the development as possible. Um, meanwhile, uh, if we want to pay attention to climate change, we want to ensure that people are living close to transit centers, that food prices don't continue to go up because of loss of, hab- of, la- loss of farmland in, in Ontario. Uh, we have to look at the empty infill lots that we have in, in Hamilton. We have to look at ways of densifying our neighborhoods, making them more walkable, more livable, and uh, ultimately changing how we've been doing development in this city for the last several decades. Ian, is there a city that has done this well instead of expanding outwards, you know, filling up those brownfield sites, those empty spaces in their community? Yeah, in fact, many delegates made reference to a lot of these cities. Um, something that my uh, my boss, uh, Executive Director Dr. Linda Lacasic, likes to make a mention of is the comparison between the cities of Barcelona and Atlanta, where they both have uh, very similar populations, but Atlanta geographically covers a much wider area and relies on driving and highways significantly more than Barcelona. But the reality is, is that the, the issues facing Hamilton are unique to North America. We've been making decisions for many decades now that have led us down this hole. And now we're looking at making that problem even worse while the problems of climate change are really focused and really honed out uh, and obvious for us now. Uh, if we expand outwards over this farmland, we're going to be making stormwater issues worse. We're going to be dumping more sewage uh, overflows into Hamilton Harbor. We're going to be seeing hotter days. We're going to be seeing more emissions from transportation. And really, at the end of the day, um, if we keep up the status quo and we give these developers who um, I do understand like to make uh, heavy donations to city councillors when election times come around, um, we're only going to be making these problems worse and making ostensibly issues that city council has said that they want to address much harder to address. We're chatting with Ian Borsick from Environment Hamilton about Hamilton's urban boundary expansion debate. Uh, I guess there is a, you know, a unique circumstance that may be on the way. We know that the provincial government's urban boundary expansion hopes are that cities like Hamilton do expand outwards. Uh, Does the province hold the hammer? Can we do anything if Hamilton does say, you know what, we don't want to expand our urban boundary? Um, well, the, there's been examples from other cities where they have, in fact, said that they need more time. Uh, Durham region was given more time by the province. Uh, it is quite unique and unprecedented that uh, the province has come down so hard on Hamilton preemptively, it seems, through that op-ed in the spec that the minister made. Um, however, as uh, we saw as the first delegation yesterday that started off the 12 hours, uh, local MPP Sandy Shaw, who's the MPP for Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas, um, Quite unprecedentedly, we saw an opposition minister uh, delegating to council, uh, flagging the fact that the Auditor General is going to be looking at the exact methodology that the province is imposing on cities with with regards to growth. And we expect to get some answers in December. Um, But really, at the end of the day, and this is what I told council yesterday, is that uh, this this provincial government is, is essentially doing climate change denial. They're looking to make the problems for the city of Hamilton worse. This is going to be, uh, you know, almost a miniature version of what amalgamation did. And they're really shoving it down our throats. And the city of Hamilton has an option to say no and to be politically bold in this situation. And, you know, at the end of the day, we have a provincial election next year. And I think the question needs to be is, is this something that Doug Ford and the PCs of Ontario are willing to have as a major election issue, which is essentially 
forcing cities of Hamilton, uh, forcing the city of Hamilton to expand outwards and sustainably. Ian, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thank you so much, Rick. That is Ian Borsick from Environment Hamilton. It is also the focus of our Twitter poll question today at AM900CHML. Do you want the city of Hamilton to approve or reject an urban boundary expansion? 77% saying reject. You can vote now on Twitter at AM900CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. People of Hamilton, they want, they need sustainable, walkable communities small businesses and coffee shops right in their neighborhoods, close to transit and jobs, housing options in their existing community. That is the voice of Zoe Green. She is from Stop Sprawl Hamilton, one of the many, 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 many delegates yesterday who were in favor of managing future growth entirely through infill and intensification as opposed to expanding our urban boundary. And after a marathon meeting yesterday at Hamilton City Hall, upwards of 12 hours, councillors are saying, hey, we, we got to take a, a little bit of a break here, clear our minds, debate this a little bit longer, at least think about it, and we'll reconvene later on this month. One of those councillors at the council table is councillor for Ward 12 in Ancaster, Lloyd Ferguson, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Councillor Ferguson. How are you? I'm perfect. Thank you. Uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Where do you stand on this issue? Well, I'm just listening for now. Um, what I what I witnessed yesterday, you know, we had 52 uh, live delegations and uh, some 29 uh, virtual delegations. So you're right. We, we were online at 9.15 in the morning, started the meeting at 9.30 and finished just after 10 or recessed just after 10 to uh, debate this issue at a future date. But uh, what I saw was a very well-oiled, well-choreographed environmental lobby, which is a very honorable lobby. Um, I guess what concerns me is, well, I also heard from the professional planners, be it our own staff, our hired uh, consultants and outside planners, is that if you go to the no-expansion urban boundary, the province is just going to oppose it anyway. And that came out in a letter to council from uh, a senior staffer at the province. And we saw the uh, minister, in fact, write an op-ed saying virtually the same thing. Do the right thing or we're going to have to step in. Now, I'm paraphrasing that. But uh, I guess what concerns me about no, and and I'm going to talk specifically to my area, to Ancaster. What uh, concerns me with the no urban boundary expansion is... uh, well, let me tell you this. I've been on planning committee for a number of years. I'm on it right now. And the only thing I hear from the public that they hate more than urban area boundary expansion is the hate intensification. Whenever we have an, uh, an application before us that shows um, an increase of intensification, we get big pushback. Uh, the neighbors and the community just don't like it. And uh, we saw that with 15 Church Street, a recent rezoning of a large lot with a burned-out home. We wanted to replace it with uh, six townhouses that were meet the height requirements, which is two and a half floors, setbacks, and just about every other condition. But they didn't like replacing one house with six townhouses, high-end townhouses. And, and in fact, uh, it carried unanimously through committee and council, and then the community now was taken off to the Ontario Land Tribunal to have that appeal because of the intensification side of it. But, um, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch because the consequences of no urban boundary expansion for Ancaster, according to our staff, would be about an additional 500 uh, condominium apartments. 
uh, along Wilson Street. I get endless complaints about the traffic on Wilson Street. It's only a two-lane road. It can't be widened, nor do we want it widened, because it's a historic road, an old, uh, a lot of old uh, heritage buildings on it, but they go right out to the, the property line. And to buy all those homes up would be impossible, both politically, because they're tearing them down. And you see that just trying to move one house to a, a new location for the Mar House right on Wilson Street. And, and the cost of it would be simply be prohibitive. Now, right now, I'm guessing that there would be maybe 100, 150 condos along Wilson Street. Uh, according to our staff, we would have to uh, shoehorn in another 500. And uh, the one that's being proposed right now, there's no formal application at Wilson Academy, they want six floors, and we have a three-floor height restriction in Ancaster. And uh, they'll be high-end townhouses, about, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but around 200. But that means uh, if there's uh, two cars for every condo, uh, and, and if we add another 500 on top of that, that's a thousand more cars every day on Wilson Street. Because the people in Ancaster like the cars. I know that a lot of people in the lower city have an anti-car movement, but that's, I'm not feeling that whatsoever in Ancaster. That um, that would simply be non acceptable to them. And so, so, so Lloyd, let me let me jump in just because we only have a, a minute left. Um, later this month, do you expect a decision to be made either for or against? Is that is it going to be a finality in, in a few weeks' time? Yes. And do you suspect the province, if there is a no vote, we're not going to expand outwards, do you expect the province to jump in? That's all the signals we got from the professionals and from the minister and from a, a senior staff person at, at the Ministry of Municipal Affairs in Toronto. Well, it'll be interesting to watch and uh, see. Lloyd, really appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot. Anytime, Rick. Bye-bye. That is uh, Lloyd Ferguson, Councillor for Ward 12 in Ancaster. Again, this debate uh, will be had later on this month. You can continue on the debate on our Twitter poll question today. Do you want the City of Hamilton to approve or reject an urban boundary expansion? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Ontario government being urged to uh, make some change when it comes to Islamophobia. Leaders of Canada's Muslim community want the provincial government to adopt uh, a variety of measures that they're they're proposing in the Our London Family Act. And here to explain what that's all about is Fatina Abdallah. She's the communications coordinator with the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Fatina, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me today. Not too bad. Thanks for coming on the show. We know that uh, this past June was a a tragic instance in uh, London, Ontario, in which uh, four family members uh, were killed by a or in a terror attack by an individual. There was a lot of talk, um, a lot of tears after that incident, Mm -hmm. but all that talk and tears really hasn't translated into action from the government. What's happened? Yeah. Yeah, um, Well, in the aftermath of the uh, London terror attack, right outside of the London Muslim Mosque, we heard a call for change um, from all three party leaders in Ontario. Um, Premier Ford uh, spoke about his call for change, leader Andrea Horwath, leader Stephen Del Duca. Um, they all promised quick and uh, decisive action to confront Islamophobia. Um, however, while we have seen some positive steps over the last couple of months, uh, there haven't been any clear policy commitments that we have called for. Um, 
there haven't been any clear uh, policy commitments that we've been that we've been calling for that had actually passed. Um, so today, well, yesterday, um, five months right after this attack, uh, we've been calling for um, immediate action in 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 terms of the uh, our London family. Yeah. How disappointing has it been over these last five months not to see some concrete action taken? It's upsetting to see um, that there haven't been any concrete action actions taken, um, and and we're at this point where we're looking for um, real commitment when it comes to uh, making sure that. Uh, there's no more loss of life in the Canadian Muslim community. Um, and and this is something that we should no longer be talking about. This is something that something that needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed now. Our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Fatina Abdallah, Communications Coordinator with the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Let's dive into the Our London Family Act. Tell us about it. Yeah, um, so we're, uh, what we are... Um, introducing is, is um, a, an, a concrete act uh, which has robust policy commitments. Um, and if introduced to pass, uh, it will address six key areas, uh, including the education system, including the, the dismantling of white supremacist groups, um, in, in, including a hate crimes accountability unit, as well as uh, key uh, strategies in, in, against anti-racism, uh, so all in all, they're they're very common sense um, policy measures uh, that that uh, is sort of uh, it, I, I guess uh, upsetting to see that uh, there haven't been any concrete changes made uh, in these areas as of yet. I would say that we know, at least from personal experience, one of the, I'm not sure it's an easy thing to do, but I think it's a great initiative to undertake, is making changes to the educational system so children who are right. in school can understand what Islam is all about. And, and one of the best high school courses I ever took, and I went to a Catholic school, it was yeah. about world religion. And we got to uh, understand yeah. about uh, uh, Judaism and Shintoism and I- I- Islam and all these different different religions and traditions and all the cool things that each a person mm-hmm. uh, who, who abide by that religion undertook. That was one of the most fascinating courses I ever took, and I still remember it, obviously, to this day. I think that would be a great initiative to undertake in our school system. Yeah, definitely. Um, schools are, 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 are is, is, a, is the first great step um, in addressing these critical issues. Um, it, it, it's a great way to uh, start with uh, addressing anti-racism and anti-Islamophobia, um, and and it's very much needed. Um, however, like uh, as of right now, like schools are are far too often the site of uh, some of the most uh, lived experiences of Islamophobia in Canada for children, um, and and these are some issues that do need to be addressed and and uh, addressed within our education system. It's clear that the time for talk is over. We do know that a provincial election is going to happen next year. Aside from some of the promises or more promises that we're probably going to hear come election time, what should be done? What What do you expect to be done here? Well, as of right now, we're we're hoping that uh, this uh, we're 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 asking for this Our London Family Act uh, to be passed. 
um, we've heard clear commitments and we've heard uh, condemnation from uh, every single party leader. Uh, however, there haven't been any uh, clear changes made as of yet. Uh, and passing this this act would um, showcase their true commitment to uh, ending Islamophobia once and for all within Ontario. We have seen far too many lives lost. Uh, there's been the attack on our London family, and not too long ago, uh, the attack right outside of the IMO mosque uh, in Toronto, where uh, Brother Muhammad Asim Zafis was, was killed right outside of the masjid. Uh, we have seen far too many mosques vandalized all across Ontario. Uh, so, so the time for talk is over, um, and, and, and it is time for clear action and clear action now. Fatima, well said. Thank you very much for the time today, and we'll certainly be following this story in uh, the days, weeks, and uh, who knows, maybe months to come. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Fatima Abdallah, Communications Coordinator, National Council of Canadian Muslims. Some of the proposals, again, that they are including in their Our London Family Act, including making changes to the educational system so children can better understand Islamophobia, dismantling white supremacist groups in the province by preventing them from registering as society. That kind of makes sense. The formation of a provincial hate crimes accountability unit that would investigate failures in fighting hate incidents and hiring more minorities in Ontario's public service. We'll continue to follow this story, and with a provincial election coming in the not-too-distant future, uh, next spring, in fact, um, we'll see if politicians do more than just talk about uh, doing some of the things that the National Council of Canadian Muslims are proposing. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting question, and uh, interesting questions, actually, regarding... Uh, COVID-19 and organ donation. There's a lot of, um, I'm not sure if it's misinformation, but uh, maybe some confusion. And uh, I thought today would be a nice opportunity to clear the air because uh, some people are asking, if, I, if I've if i had COVID-19, if I have long COVID, can I still be an organ donor? The chief medical officer with the Trillium Gift of Life Network is Darren Trelevin, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Darren. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Uh, it's a great topic and happy to be on with you. Yeah, so the question, can I still donate my organs if I've had COVID-19? The answer to that? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we've been working through the pandemic. Uh, we've been working with our intensive care units and the physicians there, uh, we were working before there was a vaccination, and uh, we're certainly working now that uh, we're getting ahead of things and most people have been vaccinated. And we've got a very, very careful process to look at this. And absolutely, uh, if you've had COVID, uh, we want to hear about you. Uh, if you're interested in donating your organs, uh, it would be uh, best if you registered at beadonor.ca and make your wishes known. Um, but there's lots of ways our teams are sorting through um, to make uh, every case count and to make sure that everybody's considered safely. So those who do have COVID, what are you looking at or what are you looking for in terms of making sure everything is safe? Well, we've had the same approach for the last couple of years with every case. So we've got uh, a couple of layers of physicians on call um, these are experts uh, that are available 24-7 that are very familiar with all of these processes. Uh, some of our on-call physicians are infectious disease experts. Some of the same physicians that are 
have been on the radio through the pandemic uh, help us with this as well. Um, we've done a clinical screening tool, uh, which is basically a checklist of things that we go through to look at the person's medical history, what's the immediate background, has there been a history of COVID concern, uh, and then we've got multiple layers of screening tests that we do. Um, most importantly, a very sensitive PCR test, uh, the same type of test that's been done in hospitals over the last year, um, that can very sensitively detect uh, COVID um, just by a nasal swab. So those are the two major layers. And, and then, you know, over time, as more people have had COVID, um, we've been able to think about more and more situations where people in the COVID, people have had COVID in their remote past or uh, in, in, you know, with a decent time interval, the test is negative. And under those circumstances, we would usually try and consider um, that family's wishes, that donor's wishes, and we would try and proceed in offering those organs. Has anyone during the pandemic been rejected because they've had COVID? Um, there have been people that have been screened positive. So, you know, so if you've had COVID within sort of 21 days or your test is, is positive, uh, especially early on, we weren't offering those organs. So there would have been very few cases like that, Rick, to be honest. But uh, but uh, now, you know, most of the cases are people that have had this remotely and, you know, it's come up, uh, you know, people have had COVID remotely and they've got long COVID. Under those circumstances, we would really just weigh, you know, what's the time interval, what does the test show, and we would generally offer those organs. Lungs, sometimes we are a little bit more careful about lungs just because, you know, obviously the tissue there has cells that uh, can be affected with COVID. We've got extra layers of testing under those circumstances. Um, but we've been able to proceed uh, looking at every single opportunity, and we've been able to do this safely in Ontario. And for the most part, it's been safe in North America. Uh, Darren Trelevin is our guest. He's the Chief Medical Officer of Transplants with the Trillium Gift of Life Network. If you want to become an organ donor, go online to beadonor.ca. But it's more than just registering online. You have to talk with your family as well, right? 100%. It's all about communication. You need to be able to discuss this topic uh, with your with your friends and your family so that they understand. Um, but in particular, I would stress um, to register over the Internet at beadonor.ca uh, you know, usually we're relying on things like traveling to Service Ontario when you're renewing your license, and those visits are down, so those registrations are down. Uh, so there's a lot of interest in this, and I think we need to show the province, everybody is, uh, everybody in Ontario, especially Hamilton, we're uh, really trying to help our community. And so if, if you want to show your support, you can log on at beadonor.ca and register there. From what I've read, there's thousands of people still on uh, the wait list for uh, whatever organ that they need, and, and hundreds of people in this country are dying because that wait is is just too long. Yeah, right now, Rick, there's 1,500 Ontarians, uh, your friends, your neighbors, uh, that are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're medical uh, specialties are helping care for them and keeping them alive, but uh, nonetheless, it is a wait. Uh, and this is a precious gift. Uh, it's an incredible act of transformation. There's so many people helped uh, with every single organ donor. Up to eight lives can be transformed. Uh, our transplant hospitals, for example, at St. Joe's in Hamilton, uh, our whole hospital glows like a light bulb uh, to try and help people who have, for example, uh, kidney disease. Uh, it's just incredible 
what you can do to get people's lives back to normal with an organ transplant. So we're all very grateful for people that sign up. We're grateful at every step of the way. And that website is beadonor.ca. Darren, thank you very much for the time and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. You too, Rick. Thanks so much for every, for your interest and uh, for allowing us to uh, feature this. Our pleasure. Darren Trelevin is the Chief Medical Officer of Transplant at the Trillium Gift of Life Network. Again, beadonor.ca and have that conversation with your family as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Here we go. The last play of the game, barring a penalty. Kevin Glenn in the shotgun. And he throws it long down the left side for Stiegel. He's got it, and he's gone. Milt Stiegel's going all the way for a touchdown on the last play of the game. A 100-yard touchdown pass. Stiegel caught the ball between two stunned Edmonton defenders around center field. I don't think he could believe it himself. And there was nobody left to beat, and he took it into the end zone. Well, if justice is to prevail as John just suggested it just did and who could have imagined an ending like that? That is the voice of Bob Irving on sister station CJOB in Winnipeg and after nearly half a century if you can believe it as the play-by-play announcer with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers Bob Irving has announced that this season is going to be his last behind the microphone and we're pleased to be joined by Bob Irving here from CJOB. Bob how are you this morning? I'm well, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. You're listening to that uh, play-by-play clip from back in 2006. Perhaps one of the most iconic plays you ever called. Can we say that? Yeah, for sure. There's uh, a lot of them, and I've been asked about them in the last 24 hours, Rick, because my retirement was formally announced yesterday, and I've done between eight and 900 Bomber games. But that play in particular is one I'll never forget. That game was over for all intents and purposes. And Kevin Glenn threw up the Hail Mary, and Milt Stiegel made the catch, as the, this, as the play-by-play said, between two Edmonton defenders who couldn't <laughs> believe it. So it for sure is one of the most memorable. And Milt Stiegel has said many times that that is the most memorable touchdown he's ever scored of the 140 or whatever it was that he did score. Why now? Why hang up the mic after this season? Well, I'm 71. I'll be 72 next year. I have some health issues. I've done this seems like forever. I still enjoy broadcasting the games as much as I ever did. Uh, some of the behind-the-scenes work has become, you know, a wee bit onerous. Uh, my wife, I think, is tired of me tying up every summer that we exist together because, <laughs> as you know, Rick, the football does tie up your summer. So we just want to set our own schedule, uh, and I just feel like uh, it's time for me to move on. You know, they often say about retirement that when it's time, you'll know, and I know. You joined CJOB in 1973. Your first call came a year later, um, the same year I was born, by the way. I don't want to make you feel old, but you've been doing it as long as I've been alive, which is incredible. Do you remember yeah. your first game? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was in Montreal, and uh, Kenny Plain, the former Bomber great, was uh, my color commentator. Two iconic Winnipeg media members, Jack Wells and Jack Matheson, were in the broadcast booth working uh, with, with us on our broadcast. And I remember how intimidated I was to be surrounded by these iconic members of the media. I don't remember the outcome of the game or anything like that, but it was in Montreal, and I was as nervous as uh, the old cat on a hot tin roof. But it, uh, it worked out okay. And how did you become the play-by-play voice? Is this something you wanted to do ever since you were young? How did it all trans uh, transpire? No, 
I was lucky. Uh, I've been so fortunate. I got hired by CGOB in 73 to be a sportscaster, a full-time sportscaster. That's the first job I had as a full-time sports reporter. And then Ken Nicholson, who was doing the Winnipeg Jets games and Winnipeg Blue Bomber games on CJOB, we had some conflicts, and he couldn't do them both. So the program director came to me and said, hey, you're going to have to do the football. And I said, ooh, that'll be pretty cool. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. So I was just lucky, Rick. I landed in the right spot and uh, was able to get an opportunity that many others in our business would kill for. Can you have imagined that nearly 50 years later you'd still be doing it? No. Oh, no. There's no way. I often thought when I was younger that I'd retire at 65 or, gosh, no later than 70. But as the years went on, and the last five or six years, I've been able to do just the football and take the winter off. So I've been sort of semi-retired, which has been nice. But no, I could never have dreamt that I would do it until I'm 71. And I think I could do it for uh, at least three or four more years if I, if I chose to. But uh, I don't want to do that. I want to However many years I've got left on this mortal coil, as I call it, <laughs> I want to have the freedom to do whatever I want to do. Bob Irving is the longtime play-by-play announcer of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You've been to nearly all 107 Grey Cups, and I'm, I'm kidding there. Do you do you have a favorite? Uh, obviously, you know, Winnipeg has won a few over your uh, during your tenure. Do you have a favorite Grey Cup game? Well, probably the 1984 game. Sorry about that, Ticat fans. That's when... Uh, <laughs> Tom Clements and the Bombers beat Dieter Brock and the Tiger Cats. The Bombers have been going through a 22-year drought, Rick, at that Grey Cup. Uh, it was in Edmonton, Commonwealth Stadium. It was, like, freezing. But that was a terrific Bomber team coached by Cal Murphy, who had some great teams in the 80s. Uh, and that one, I think if I had to pick one, that would be my favorite. And a close second would be the one in 2019, because Michael Shea and Wade Miller and the gang here in Winnipeg has done such a great job of building this franchise back up after it was really in the dumps. And it was so satisfying for me to see them rewarded because they're good people and they've worked so hard to restore the pride in the Blue Bombers. And that victory two years ago uh, not only came at the expense of the Tiger Cats again, but also ended an even longer Grey Cup drought. So, yeah, it was nice to see that they had finally ended that. Now the Ticats have the longest drought in the CFL. Uh, you earned the name or the nickname Knuckles uh, during your time behind the mic. Where does that come from? It came from Jack Wells. Uh, I'm a nervous flyer, a fearful flyer, and they don't use the term anymore, but uh, back in the 70s and 80s when you didn't like to fly and you sort of grabbed the seat arm and held it tight, your knuckles would turn white, and they'd call you a white-knuckle flyer. And so Cactus Jack saw me on a, a few airplanes do that, and he decided I should be called Knuckles. And when Jack gave you a nickname, it stuck, and I have ever more been known by a lot of people as Knuckles Irving. <laughs> uh, Bob Knuckles Irving is also a member of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, the Blue Bomber Hall of Fame as well, calling more than 800 games in the Canadian Football League. We only have about a minute to go. What advice do you have for the person who steps into your shoes? Well, I wouldn't, the only, only advice I'd have, Rick, would be just be yourself. You know, just uh, describe the games in your style. Don't try to mimic anybody or be anybody. Just do it. And it'll work out. That's the only advice I would give them, and I'm not going to give him or her any great advice or be hovering over their shoulder in any way. I'll be well away from them when they get started. By the way, if I've got a second, I think we're going to have another Winnipeg-Hamilton Grey Cup. I think the Tiger Cats have come on strong in the East, and they would be my pick to win the East. And 
the Bombers to win the West, and here we go again. That would be a fantastic final, this time in Hamilton, and who knows what will happen. Bob, really appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Hey, Rick, my pleasure. Thank you. Bob Irving, class act and a wonderful play-by-play announcer for 47-plus years with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. This will be his last season. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Are your children picky eaters? Are you tired of trying to convince them to try something new? (laughs) I'm in that boat. Uh, Rishma Gavani is the author of a new book called Sushi and Samosas, A Trip of Tasty Transformations, and it's about picky eaters who have adventurous foodie parents. And Rishma joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rishma. Hi, Rick. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm good. Is everyone hungry? I am starving. (laughs) What prompted you to write this book? Um, This book was marinating for quite a long time. I used to have a dinner club that used to try different Um, ethnic cuisines once a month. And it was really successful. Um, When I had kids, it sort of slowed down and eventually like died out and fizzled out. But the idea was always there percolating. And it was an idea that I wanted to pass on to my kids. But my kids were really picky, as a lot of kids are. But it's interesting that you said at the top that, you know, it's not just kids, right? We all as adults, you know, doesn't matter what age you are, have hesitations. We don't like certain textures or smells. And so we constantly need to check ourselves and try new things because our palates are constantly changing as we age. So is this book for parents and their children? Yeah, interestingly enough, I've had some really positive feedback, um, including uh, someone who's a kindergarten teacher and read the book out loud to their students and said, you know what, this book was equally a- applicable to me because I tend to um, favor, a, you know, a staple diet of chicken nuggets and fries, which is the favored food um, that the kids like in this book. Everything's ew, everything's gross, everything's no way, but their foodie parents are determined for them to try new things. And when they try new things, their world totally expands and it just gets bigger. The world gets much, much bigger for them. We're chatting with Rishma Gavani, author of Sushi and Samosas, A Trip of Tasty Transformations. It's uh, published by Barnes & Noble. You can pick it up as a gift online right now. Uh, We all know that music is an international language. I've always said that food is the same. Everyone understands food. Yeah, I think music is something that unites us. And food is another one that brings us to the table, literally, right? And brings us closer together. And if you think about the concept of travel, it's not like you ju- you have to get on a plane and jet set away to a new country. You can do that, you know, within your own city, within your own house, pick up different ingredients and try to uh, experiment with them. So it's the idea of traveling. And yes, a lot of unity and harmony Um, through food. When you look at the commonalities, we're always looking at differences, but look at what's in common. Every culture has rice as a staple. Every culture has some some form of potatoes, right? Uh, A different treatment, maybe. Tomatoes is another one. There's so many um, international recipes that require some of those staple foods, and they really ground us and bring us together. 
Um, I think it's a great conversation starter. I think it's a great water cooler topic to be able to talk about, hey, I tried these types of ramen noodles. And then someone weighs in and says, oh, no, but you should try these ones at this place or buy these ones from this place. So I think it's a great way to get to know each other and bring us closer together, much like music. Very much so. Rishma, we got to run. Thank you very much for the time and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Try something new today. (laughs) Oh, I certainly will. Rishma Gavani is the author of Sushi and Samosas, A Trip of Tasty Transformations. Head online and pick that up today. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review